It's amazing what can all transpire in the world in between the times when we gather as community and worship, the news headlines and all that's transpired in the Middle East, the uncertainties and fears in peaceful places when people gather for things like a soccer game or a rock concert or a dinner with family, as we saw in the city of Paris this past week. At 10 o'clock tonight, anybody interested from the community in joining together in a time of prayer for all of these things is invited by Student Symposium to gather again in this space and just offer up a time of prayer um, for our own hearts and knowing how to respond for those who are hurting the most in times like this and for the opportunities that this presents too, for you and I once again to be those who cling to our Father, proclaim His truth, and find ways for it to have bearing in a world around us that seems spinning so fast sometimes and beyond our control. It's fitting as well that it's actually a lot of what we're going to talk about together this morning as Jesus takes the disciples into a Gentile region, into a scary place for them. He leads them outside of their comfort zone and they don't just stand in a place where they react and respond to what's taking place in the world with, around them. But he takes them in one of Israel's most historic enemies and darkest places in their nation's history. And he goes there and demonstrates his authority and his love and his healing hand as well. For an introduction and our way into this message this morning and into this text, I found these words yesterday in the Washington Post. They're more articulate than mine. From Jeremy Courtney, he's the chief executive of Preemptive Love Coalition. He wrote an article in the Acts of Faith section. His opinion is submitted with this title, The World is Scary as Hell, Love Anyway. I have a confession, he says. I'm afraid. I live in Iraq with my family, working at the headwaters of the Syrian and Iraqi refugee crisis. Moving among Sunni jihadist sniper fire, suicide bombers, sleeper cells, and Iranian-backed militia. I've received death threats, had mobs incited against me, and had friends kidnapped and killed by Sunnis and Shia, Arabs and Kurds. And I'm afraid. Even on the ground here in Iraq, I hear the zero-sum conversation taking place in the U.S. right now. Be wise. Close the borders. Protect our own on the one hand, or be loving, welcome refugees, and stop being afraid on the other. Well, if you're not afraid, you're either braver than me or significantly less informed. Terrorism, kidnappings, and beheadings are not political talking points for us. I often think about my American colleagues and what might happen to us and our families if we were captured or killed. Will someone care for my wife, Jessica? And our kids, will I care for my colleagues' families if they don't make it home alive? But I always end up most afraid for my local friends. When you swim in the headwaters of the refugee crisis, you don't see Muslims or Christians, Arabs, Yazidis, or Kurds. At least you don't see those things first, unless you are already sectarian and insist on labeling people before you help them. Almost all of the post-Paris terrorism and refugee conversation is, at best, an offer at a new set of lenses through which the other is urged to view the situation. When we try them on and the world becomes even more blurry, 
We're tempted to circle the wagons once again with our own group on Facebook, in the office, and in our places of worship. Feeling scared and defensive, we become more entrenched in the things that we already held to be true. Smart people are working on the refugee crisis, and they are neither naive imbeciles nor warmongering scaredy cats. So I don't think it's, it is new lenses or simply perspectives that are all that is needed. What is needed above all is the one thing we cannot attain by force of will, brand new eyes to see it. We absolutely need to be wise to protect our own and to screen all refugee applicants. And we absolutely must care for those who are on the run for their very lives right now. Simply putting on lenses urges us to choose a spot between polar opposite ideas by assuming the option is either security or insecurity, compassion or callousness. But there is a third option altogether for those who live beyond dualism and exclusive forms of tribalism. With new eyes, we can take both these threads and weave a cord that achieves a security and compassion that is actually strong enough to thrive in the face of terror. Call it gospel or good news. I call it preemptive love. A story that's actually held common by Muslims and Christians about a Middle Eastern family of refugees fleeing violence whose son changes the world by giving himself over to the enemy. But the story is deeper still because the refugee is more than a brown Middle Easterner. The refugee is actually a message from God who crosses all barriers and endures great violence to make all things new. New eyes help us tap into the truth of the cosmos that some things are worth dying for, including going beyond the gates of security to welcome those who are fleeing terror, even if it results in facing terror. Extending a welcoming arm is loving not only for the other, but for our own self as well, because the gap between who we say we are and what we actually do is widening every day. If we love our children and want a better world for them, we have to stop bouncing between these two polarities and operate on a higher level. When we get new eyes, we see the minuscule number of wolves among the sheep and admit that we are vulnerable and that our security could fail us. And we love anyway. Hell on earth is often how people describe the dis. Hell on earth is often how people displaced by the Islamic State, militia, and dictatorial regimes describe their existence. Hell on earth is what the carnage looked like after terrorist attacks in Paris, Beirut, Baghdad, Ankara, and on 9-11 as well. It is not right or reasonable to tell anyone, do not be afraid. Terrorism is terrifying. But we should aim not to be ruled by fear. In the face of ISIS, Iran, and countless other nemesis neighbors, we commit to love anyway, because punching fear in the face does not give birth to love. It's just another way to continue fighting. New eyes help us die before we die, and that love leads to death, and that death leads to love. Give birth to a peace stronger than our fears. Yes, 
The world is scary as hell. Love anyway. No doubt you've seen all of the language that's taking place on social media and all over the place as people pile on and surround and offer our opinions from so far away on how to solve the perils of the world right now. My favorite little post that came up on media was from Oliver Willis yesterday on on Twitter. If only we had a seasonally appropriate story about a Middle Eastern people seeking refuge being turned away by the heartless. If only we had a story for a time like this. If only there was a script that still spoke to this and the needs of the world as we face them and see them today. I want you to know this morning that the only way that our script will ever fail us is if we fail to let our script be our script. That is the only way it will fail us. The narrative of what it is that we learn in Scripture, and we don't get to cherry pick this. We don't get to pick the things that make us comfortable and affirm what we already believe while not being challenged by the rest. A disciple is always being willing to be made uncomfortable by Jesus and what it is that he is calling us to, and he never promised us a life of creaturely comforts. He promised us in Christ's adoration the ability to have eternity on the horizon at all times, a grander perspective that isn't just a new perspective, but an entirely new set of eyes. In the story that we are about to read, Jesus does this for his disciples, not taking them to an optometrist to tweak the prescription on their lenses, but to throw out the entire way they saw looking at things so that they could see it anew with eyes of faith. That they would not be people who simply sit back reacting to the world around them. People who don't simply believe that things like prayer are a last resort, but rather that prayer may just be the most offensive weapon we have in the world. Who believe and choose to fight with different weapons. Who believe in a power that is above the scariest ones that take physical form in our world. Who believe that at the end of the day, enemy love still has the ability to transform the world. And that the model of Jesus Christ wasn't just a model for 12 disciples, but for the entire people of God who would come after him. And for you and for me. We continue reading through the different healing stories that Jesus enacts in the Gospel of Mark as we pick it up in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. 
It's solving the little details within the text that we begin to realize when we slow down our reading and read more carefully and closely begin to tell us something incredibly significant about what's going on. This healing story is so unique in Mark's gospel because it isn't actually about the healing. It's about so much more than that. And Mark tells us at the beginning that, of course, they've now gone to Tyre. I've been telling you in multiple messages that Mark arranges his gospel geographically in the first several chapters in and around Galilee, then moving through the Decapolis and the Gentile region before the -the on-the-way section that leads them into Jerusalem. And so there's these geographical movements that guide the storytelling and that tie the gospel together. Well, if you don't know your Middle Eastern geography all that well, and I didn't until I looked this up either, when it says Jesus went and took them to Tyre, what he actually did was took them on an amazingly long detour in order to get to this place. A 125-mile detour. If your professor this afternoon decided to take you on a walk to Omaha in order to give you a lesson, I'm thinking you would probably remember that day quite well. 125-mile detour. Surely this is important for what's about to take place. Surely this confusing passage about language like dog, and it almost seems like somebody's being left out and is a second-tier type of citizen. What is going on in this whole passage? Why is it significant that they go to Tyre? Tyre is in the middle of the place. There's a first-century historian, the most famous Jewish one at the time, Josephus, writes about this text and about Jesus going to the city of Tyre and describes these people as Israel's historically most notorious and bitterest enemies. Immediately before this moment in history, they have aligned against Israel one more time in war. Tyre was the place that Jezebel came from. All the great pagan and syncretistic influences that came into Israel and threatened to disrupt their, disrupt their holy life or whether or not a king was going to be obedient to God rather than to all the different gods and idols from the nations around them often came from this place of negative in, influence. If you're going to let the influence from Tyre and Syria come in, dangerous things are going to happen. Israel's known this from all of its history. When something comes from Syria in, it usually isn't good. Sounds a lot like some of the conversations taking place today, doesn't it? And yet Jesus doesn't wait for this to come to him. He actually goes to it. And going into Tyre at this moment in history was not all that different than someone walking into the place of Tyre or modern-day cities of Syria today as well. Physical risk, danger, socially unwelcome, religiously opposed. But Jesus goes a 125-mile detour in order to get there. This is not an accident. There's something being stated in the way that he's orchestrating the events. And he takes them into the middle of Tyre, and he comes across this woman who is begging Jesus So now as these movements move into a a gentile interaction between Jesus and his disciples, first, of course, remember, if you remember just the last chapter back, Jesus fed the 5,000, right? And then he walks on water as he goes into this gentile region. The story that comes right before the one that we just read is Jesus actually arguing with the religious leaders of the day, saying, your disciples don't keep things clean. Your disciples um, don't follow all the rules and the traditions of the elders, To which Jesus replies, nothing outside you can defile you by going into you. Rather, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. 
There is nothing about the world around us that we interact with or are called to be missional towards that will defile us. It will be that which comes out of us that defiles us. And so Jesus takes them here. What's interesting too is he fed the 5,000. He did this for the Israelite people. And now immediately after this text, Jesus is now going to feed 4,000 Gentile people. Demonstrating to the disciples that the healing and restoration that I have come to bring is not just for the inner clique. It's not just for the people who have the biological lineage to prove that they have some sort of historical tie to a couple people back in history. Because from the very beginning, my intention was the healing of the nations and the inclusion of all peoples in the promises to be with me forever. And so Jesus physically walks into Tyre, opening up with his words, opening the arms of the Father that much wider to say all the nations are welcome. Everybody is coming in. I will feed the Israelites and I will feed the Gentiles. I will heal the children of Israel and I will heal all my children. And everybody gets it. So Jesus already eliminated this idea of clean and unclean. So when this woman comes to him and Jesus creates a differentiation between her and the people of Israel... Do not be thrown off by the cultural difference in the way that we use words. If I were to call one of you today a dog, that would be considered a pretty derogatory term. I think we have to leave that aside to understand what's taking place within this text, because that's not what's taking place. In fact, if this woman would have been so offended by the term, why would she have turned around and then used it to describe herself in her own response back to Jesus? She doesn't. This is simply a matter of God's plan and mission in the world. In the same way in Acts chapter 1, it talks about the mission of God to the ends of the earth being to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and the concentric circles that move outward. It's simply the patterning by which God seeks to bring about redemption in the world. That he used Israel to be a light to the nations, that he uses new Israel to be a light to the nations, but always to be a light to the nations. That was the calling at the beginning. That was still the calling Israel misunderstood that and took it as some form of privileged status. And so entering into this cultural conversation, Jesus does not leave this woman and her suffering and her need out because there's only a privileged few or there's only so much of the love of God to go around. There's a lot more of the love of God to go around and it gets passed out. And what's interesting too is that Mark tells the story and by the time this is done, he elevates this woman because in all the Gospels, she's the only person who ever bested Jesus in a discussion. The great religious teachers all get put down very, very quickly and are humbled by Jesus. And now this story gets told of the Syrian woman who bested Jesus in an argument and to him who he replies, and for that answer, absolutely. It's beautiful the way that this all transpires. And I find it so ironic that here it is, Jesus going into this place, a woman from Syrian Phoenicia, a Syrian woman, extending the love of Christ, given everything that's happening in our headlines today. We had this text written down on our schedule already in July that we'd be covering it today. It's almost like God wants to say something to us. And that the things that he wants to say are simply this. It is not our job to pick our place and embed our opinion a little more entrenched on our side of the political argument. And it's not about whether you're left or whether you're right. It's not about you or I inflaming the rhetoric a little bit further. It's about our need to trust the story, to submit to this script and not believe that we need to create our own.
To believe that the same Jesus who walked his disciples into Tyre is the same Jesus who's walking Jeremy Courtney and other followers of Christ into those places today to be incredibly powerful messages of redemption and new life. And what is he calling us to do in the middle of all of this? Obviously to pray and to be supportive of those. But also to rethink and realize that it's not just a different perspective we need, another argument we need to listen to, a tweaking on our perspective, our lenses. We too still need new eyes altogether. Someone who helped me get, see sort of new eyes this past week too, a blogger by the name of Ryan Duick. He says it like this. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we live by a different script when it comes to what we're supposed to do with the threat of bad people doing bad things, whether here or abroad. Jesus said a lot of weird things that are sometimes hard to make heads or tails of, but one thing Jesus wasn't at all ambiguous about was how those who followed him were supposed to think about and treat their enemies. On this matter, he was painfully uncomfortably, crystal clear. Love them. Pray for them. Maybe, just maybe, that in the midst of people's suffering and struggle arises the greatest opportunity to plant the seeds of the gospel that create the greatest moments of change. Maybe, just maybe, this is the time when the family of God opens its arms wider and gets a little more articulate and a little more trusting in the word that we were given from the very beginning, that we have the power and authority to bring about healing and redemption in Jesus' name in the places where everybody else would run out of, and we actually have the strength and the authority and a different narrative that says, even historically from our Savior, that we walk straight into. And we do not fear in the same way. Yes, do we fear for our lives? Sure. But we don't fear because we're afraid that our greatest values of creaturely comforts are taken from us. We fear for the other. We fear for the neighbors that we are called to love as ourselves. We fear that, that our understanding of what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ and understand God's love for all of humanity is beginning to get called into question as everybody starts to batten down the hatches and fear and protect their own. So as Christians, there are certain things that we just don't get to do. We don't get to hunt around for excuses for why we don't need to include those people in the category of neighbor that Jesus gave us. We don't get to look for justifications for why it's better to build a wall than an open door. We don't get to label people in convenient and self-serving ways in order to convince ourselves that we don't have to care for them. And we don't get to speak and act as if fear is a more pragmatic and useful response than love. We don't get to reduce the gospel of peace and life and hope to a business-as-usual kind of political pragmatism with a bit of individual salvation sprinkled on top. We don't get to ask as our default question, how can I protect myself and my way of life, but rather, how does the love of Christ constrain and liberate me in this particular situation? All of this is, of course, for the simple reason that as Christians, we are convinced that ultimately evil is not overcome by greater force or mightier weapons or higher walls or more entrenched divisions between good people and bad people, but by costly self sacrificial love, the kind of love that God displayed for his friends and his enemies 
on a Roman cross. So please understand, Christian, that how you speak about people and the things that you share online matters. It matters a great deal. Please understand that you're on a team that is supposed to play the game by a different set of rules and follow a different script. And please understand that Jesus of Nazareth will be no ally of yours when you attempt to make arguments about how the real or imagined badness of other people means that we no longer have any obligation to them. As followers of this king and as citizens of this kingdom, we don't get to make that move. We are called to a gospel of enemy love. We are called to believe that the way the world gets transformed is to stare into a cross and see a grave that comes out the other side. It's not supposed to always make sense. That wasn't supposed to happen. But let not the way that the world dictates fears dictate our responses to things. In the midst of suffering and struggle becomes the most fertile soil for the greatest gospel transformation in the world's history. And these moments are no different. You stand as a generation capable of making an incredibly profound difference on what lies ahead. Let us not shrink back in total and complete fear. But with the wisdom of Christ guided by the Holy Spirit and empowered with a love that is greater than any weapon, let us move forward day by day, not fearful because the greatest things that are the most important to us simply cannot be taken from us. Looking ahead to an an eternal horizon, not the scariest headlines of the day, not responding to the world around us, but letting the narrative that we believe in and the script that we follow flavor everything else. This is still our story. And it will not fail us if we do not fail to put it above us again and again. Will you pray with me? Father, we have so many fears Sometimes there is as simple as the test that's coming tomorrow. Sometimes they're about the uncertainty of economies or nation states or our world itself. And there are so many voices speaking right now. And Father, we just pray that in this time that your people would come back and hear your voice more clearly than ever before. For all the wisdom that's out there being spouted by so many people, that again we would come before yours and submit to it. Knowing that here and here alone we will find our freedom, that here and here alone will we find unshakable truth, that here and here alone will we find ourselves in you and therefore find ourselves at peace. Because we know that's what you promised us. And so teach us to claim it to live out of this script and show us too what that means for each one of us to play our part in voicing not how we run or not how we run away but how we run to with the banner of love and your cross before us and you within us. In Jesus' name, amen.